morning. This is Guylaine from Rest Reflection. Welcome to At Work, a fortnightly space on all things inequality, injustice and oppression in the workplace. If you have questions, queries, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, perhaps to leave us some feedback or to suggest some direction in terms of where we might go with the next set of reflection, please get in touch using contact at restreflections.co.uk or at work at restreflections.co.uk. hesitated today and I wasn't sure where to focus my attention for this episode. I had two things in mind. Actually, the first was to kind of give you a sense of the masterclasses on whiteness, which was also the occasion to pre-launch White Mind. Thank you, by the way, to everyone who has attended, shown support, and also already pre-ordered the book. It means a lot. Thank you so very much. It's quite important as an aside. It's quite important to support uh, new authors, particularly Black women's scholars, early in the production process, so to say. So it does help when the book is pre-ordered before it is released or officially published because it does go into the number, the statistics, the sales profile of the book. And if a book is already gathering some interest before it is officially released, it means when it is released, it is more likely to get I'd say maybe some courage. The reality is that it helps with the profile of the book and that therefore helps with the sales, which therefore helps with the opportunities that any scholar writers is going to be afforded. So yes, I don't think many of us write to be rich. I think that would be a very, a very unwise trajectory to take or motivation to have as a writer. I really think none of us really write for the money. But hey, we do need the money to survive and we need the money to get further book deals and so therefore further opportunities. was an aside, a digression, we might say, even, but I think it was an important one. Now, I started by saying that I wasn't sure about where to start this podcast, and I said that I had to think in mind the conference was the first thing, and the masterclass, therefore, related to that. And then the second thing was also related, which was the masterclass on proximal ambivalence, which takes us back to the day as well. And so I thought maybe I focus on that. It's a topic that I cover in the book in White Mind. It was the area of one of the masterclass for the pre-launch event last week, which was the 15th of September. And it is also something that's quite relevant at the moment. 
in light of, oh gosh, so much of what's going on in the world, in society. So I'm going to share a few thoughts about what I call proximal ambivalence, explain what it is, and also how it manifests in the workplace. So let's start with maybe the anecdote of the last week event incident, uh, troubling as it is. Now I'm going to give the broad lines because I haven't followed the affair very closely. But a black woman, I believe, was assaulted in Peckham and she was assaulted in an Asian store. So there is an online video of her circulating, having the owner of the store appearing to strangle her. Now, as I understand what has been written on social media is that this black woman got into the store and there was a dispute around some hair products. I'm not sure whether it was hair extension or or wave or whether it was to do with hair care stuff. But nonetheless, it was a so-called Afro store owned by an Asian in Peckham, so therefore South London, where the dispute occurred. Now, as I understand, there was a little bit of street disturbance as a result of the incident. So some people took to the street of Peckham, as I understand, and it seems that even the mayor of London, Sadi Khan, had to ask for help. And so there's been a conversation on going around the treatment of black people within those stores and anti-blackness, I guess, more generally within brown groups, more specifically in the UK context, South Asian groups. So that's the kind of context that makes this conversation, this podcast relevant. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my own experience in Afro Store because I don't think that there is anyone who is black who hasn't been in those stores and regrettably hasn't had some negative experience. Now, of course, we want to avoid generalizing, overgeneralizing. But I think it's also important that we bear in mind the importance of drawing A, parallels and B, patterns when they occur. And so I would say that my own personal lived experience is that I haven't necessarily been always treated with respect in these spaces. There is often an air of contempt. There is often a entitlement, I'd say, to our coins. And there is maybe a sense which might be reflective of the reality that we have nowhere else to go to buy this product because they do tend to be owned by Asian people, South Asian people in the main, in the UK. I mean, disproportionately, disproportionately, easily 90%. And so this is the case. Now, of course, the fact that the store was an Afro Air product already initiated a little bit of a itch because there is that kind of community tension around those stores and the reality that often those stores are located in predominantly black areas, predominantly working class, if not poorer areas. And so the socioeconomic context and the tension that might arise from that are not only racialized, but they are also economic. 
So you have a sense that essentially people who are external to the local community are making money off the back of the community. And on top of that, making money in a way that's not always thoughtful and respectful of Black women. Now, that is a sense and that is a prevalent sense. And that is a, a perspective that I understand because I have myself not always been treated well in those spaces. So I understand it. And I also want to say that aside from those tensions, there are long historical interracial tension between Black and brown groups, some dating as far back as colonial administrations and the role that Asian groups have played in African colonies and in the Caribbean when it comes to supporting the British colonial rule, right? And so therefore the status and also the wealth that that has generated. So that is also part of the conversation. So I just wanted to give you that for context to make perhaps the idea of proximal ambivalence relevant. I'm going to tell you what I mean by proximal ambivalence. And I explain the concept in white mind, but roughly speaking, what I mean by proximal ambivalence is the process whereby groups which have what we call proximity to power, proximity to whiteness, can be ambivalent. They can have mixed feelings when it comes to justice, when it comes to liberation, when it comes to dismantling white supremacy. And that is purely because in that stratified system, they are located both people who are racialized as black and so therefore tend to lose more when it comes to some of the advantages, when it comes to some of the protection, when it comes to some of the benefits that are afforded to them to in some way uphold the structure of white supremacy. And so it's important to say that in my conceptualization of white supremacy, I say that white supremacy is a caste system. That's not a new idea. But it is important to understand that because oftentimes when it comes to thinking about racialized violence, it's a common anti-racist phrase that black people, brown people can be racist, or if you are, quote unquote, a target, a victim, a survivor, even we might say, of white supremacist violence and injustice, you cannot reproduce the same. And so I do challenge this idea because what I say is that everyone pretty much within the structure and the strata of white supremacy can reproduce white supremacist logics and can therefore enact racialized violence towards those groups that are located lower down that hierarchy. And it is a hierarchy that is very complex because there is a hierarchy within white group, there is a hierarchy within brown group, there is a hierarchy within black groups. And generally, this is how the whole pyramid, if you like, stands. Uh, so I explain in the book that, of course, even within people who are racialized as white, not everything is equal, right? So we know that a person who is racialized as white, but is French, is going to be deemed whiter than a person who is racialized as white, but who might be Spanish, who is going to be deemed whiter than a person who is racialized as white, who might be Romanian. 
So that's to give you an example. In the same way that if you look at the racialization of adjacent groups, so let's say brown people, we know that even if we were to take Asian groups, specifically South Asian groups, we know that generally someone who is Indian, all things being equal, and who is racialized as brown, is likely to be considered less black, let's say less black, than someone who is racialized as Bangladeshi, for example. And also within blackness, even if we also are all the victim to some degree, the targets of anti-blackness, we also know that there is a hierarchy in action. So that someone who is racialized as black, but is of, say, Caribbean ancestry or heritage, rather, is likely to be deemed somewhat higher up the hierarchy of blackness than someone who is black, racialized as black, but also of, say, African origin. That is all things being equal, right? So that is not taken into consideration issues such as social class, issues such as gender even, and issues such as disability. So we are really talking about intersectional factors. So to revert to the main point that I was trying to say, whiteness is a pyramid where supremacy is a caste system. That means that it is based, it is reliant on a pyramid. And that pyramid is a form of stratification, hierarchization, whereas groups are differentially located when it comes to the top. So those who are deemed more superior and the bottom, that is those who are deemed more inferior. And that's really the point when it comes to thinking about those proximal dynamics, right? So it means that because there is essentially some gains from the current status quo, when someone is located, as I often say, to simplify things, somewhere in the middle, when it comes to that hierarchization, when it comes to that stratification, it means that they are likely, on the one hand, to be motivated towards challenging structures of injustice and of power, and on the other hand, motivated to do nothing because they know because they have also been at the receiving end of racialized oppression. They know that things can also be worse, particularly because they have black people, right? And lots of anti-racist scholars, lots of race scholars have essentially posited that the pyramid of white supremacy is fundamentally reliant on anti-blackness and that to be accepted within white supremacy, uh, to be whiteness and to be racialized as white, implies the adoption of anti-black beliefs or ideology at group level, of course, we are talking about, or else you cannot gain access to the fortress of whiteness, as I call it. So how that look like at work? Now I can tell you, Firstly, from my experience, that a lot of the time when I have experienced institutional racism, and I'm talking really serious institutional racism, I'm not going to give some example, I'm not going to give some illustration on this occasion, but I would say that when I have experienced serious institutional racism, that anyone with any kind of minimal understanding of racism would deem institutional, there's always been a brown person, often a brown woman, but usually a brown person involved. Now, not 
often where they're the main protagonist, but they were often part of the either decision-making process or they were part of the, say, bystander group and had more power to either speak, potentially challenge, in any event to break the silence over what was going on. They've never done it in my experience, so I hardly now come to expect this kind of support when I encounter anti-blackness within institution. Because again, all things being equal in this country, brown people tend to have more power within institution than black people. And so therefore, they tend to lose when it comes to cosiness, I'd say, uh, when it comes to, say, proximity to the master. And so the system of white supremacy, in some way, we must remember, is aspirational and people aim to be close to the master. And very few people who are occupying those proximal spot where, again, standing very close to the top of that hierarchy, are going to take risk for people who are racialized as Black because it means that they might lose some of what has been granted to them for their complicity in that system. So that might look like, for example, brown people adopting anti-Black attitude in the workplace or colluding with anti-Black attitude, with issue of scapegoating, or with simply oftentimes invisibilizing, denying racism, and very specifically racism that affect Black people. Now, those are very important dynamics that happen in most institutions, I believe, but are difficult to name because without the necessary understanding and the linguistic frame, it means that Black people, people who are racialized are Black, are vulnerable to mistreatment, to injustice, not only at the hands of people who are racialized as white, but also at the hands of people who are racialized as brown, from people in those proximal spots, in the middle of the hierarchy, who may need, they feel, to enact this kind of violence towards Black employees to protect their position and so their place above and beyond people who are racialized as Black. Now, this is really what I mean by proximal ambivalence. And this is the kind of thing that I mean when I talk about proximal dynamics, right? So the kind of dynamics, the kind of processes, the kind of tension, conflicts that arise because of the hierarchization of races, because of racialization or the stratification of different groups within white supremacy. That is what I call proximal dynamics and proximal ambivalence simply refer to that internal conflict, right, between wanting to dismantle, so therefore the liberatory impulse, we might say, and also the kind of wish for comfort, for power, and for proximity to the master. I'm going to end there because I think that's a lot to think about. I hope it makes sense. I am going to invite some questions. I know I could have been a little bit more practical in giving some example, but I want to end here because I like to keep the podcast to 20 minutes maximum wherever I can. But please get in touch with questions, with queries, with dilemmas. I think that is an important, if controversial, and possibly even a little distressing subject area. But I think it's crucial that we talk about it. It's crucial that we challenge it, particularly for brown groups who are 
anti-racist or who aim to be so-called allies or engage at least in the struggle against anti-blackness. So I've been Gillian for Race Reflection. Until next time, please take care. Subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to send us queries, questions and dilemmas to be reflected on, please email at work at racereflections.co.uk.